about <clears throat> your practice. <clears throat> yes? Most of your My suffering. Yes. But I'm having trouble with the difference between abandoning unskillful thoughts and being immersed in Okay, the comment is most of her suffering comes from thoughts and she's requesting some understanding of the difference between abandoning skillfully thoughts and pushing away out of aversion. I think the essential difference between abandoning skillfully and aversion is seeing clearly. And it sounds like you are beginning to see your thoughts but it sounds like you feel mm, a little bit badgered by them. And in an attempt to get away from that badgering there is a feeling of pushing them away. Um, what you might try is doing a little reprogramming by acknowledging that just as the eyes see and the ears hear, whether we want them to or not, they, you know, is there anybody that didn't hear that noise outside? <laughs> you know, we didn't have to do anything special. It just, there's hearing. In the same way, the mind thinks. We don't have to do anything special. It's, it just happens due to conditions. So just like we don't really have any choice but to hear, and we see how obvious, obvious our suffering is if we try to pretend that that sound isn't there. So too with your thoughts. They come due to conditions. You might try to be as open to thoughts being present as you are to that sound. Hopefully you didn't struggle against that sound too long. And in that process of opening to thoughts, there's, the, there's a couple things that happen. One is there is the recognition of the content, blah, 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 blah. And there's the recognition of the process of thinking. And you might distinguish between your awareness of those two. Sometimes your awareness will be firmly of the content. And then there is a real sense of being caught, being stuck, being badgered. And in an attempt to get out of it, we push it away. That 
awareness or that identification with the content um, I was going to say needs to be looked at but I think more accurately it needs to be felt what what is so unpleasant about that particular thought is it shameful is it embarrassing is it just strong desire that can't be fulfilled is it whatever 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 are you frustrated by it, disappointed by it? Do you judge yourself by it? What is going on in your relationship to that thought that makes it so unpleasant that you want to get away from it? When you can see that relationship to the content and come to some balance with that, then the seeing thoughts skillfully and abandoning them is really a matter of just being aware of the process of thinking and seeing how the thought just dissolves. It is impermanent, just like that sound, thank goodness. And when we uh, stop reacting to the thought as thinking or as content, then we'll see that it is a pretty transient, insubstantial experience. Now, it may be followed immediately by another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And that's where we really start to feel overwhelmed and oppressed and really get disappointed and frustrated. But we do need to develop patience and perseverance, persistence, stamina. Uh, <laughs> you know, to just, okay, I see you. I see this thought. I see, yes, yes, thinking, thinking, disliking, disliking. And the abandoning is not so much a willful, I'm going to abandon this thought that I really want to hang on to. It's more abandoning because of insight. Abandoning because you see clearly that it is insubstantial, it is transient, and it really is out of your control. Is that helpful? Okay. Good theory, huh? <laughs> it's... it's it takes some, you know, try and try again. Practice, we call it. It's practice. <laughs> there was a question. Yes. Oh, I see. That's what that is. 
there's, you know, most of the time that's not the case. And so I'm, I'm looking for some, uh, uh, you know, assistance in continually being counterintuitive about this feeling. Continuing to, excuse me. I like that um, image you used of the leaf falling. Of course, we see a lot of them. When we see a leaf fall, you know, you just watch it. What's that got to do with impermanence, really? How does that show us impermanence through, an, through a thought process of thinking. Oh, that was there, and now it's there, and it was alive, and now it's colored, and now it's on the ground, and in the spring it'll be mush. Hmm. I guess it's impermanent. Through a thought process, seeing, thinking about what is seen, we come to understand impermanence. What I and others try to show you in talking about no-self, or the idea, or the concept, or the truth, however it is for you at this point, is pointing to experience and leading you through a thought process that reveals that that experience could indicate the absence of a permanent, autonomous entity within this process. And a few of those experiences that we point to are, you know, as I mentioned somewhere recently in a talk or two, one is just noticing how insubstantial experience really is. When you really look at the experience of this body, and you really feel the experience of this body, and I'm sure all, all of you <coughs> excuse me, have had a sitting or a piece of a sitting somewhere where the body is just absolutely empty substance. There isn't anything there. It's just a sense of spacious, open nothing. Or you really, you really get your mind, your attention, right on a, a piece of the body somewhere, and you see that there's nothing there. That experience, rightfully understood from the, from the Buddhist perspective, points to the truth of there's no enduring entity in the body, and if we look at the mind in the same way, and we see how ephemeral everything is in the mind, how the mind is just evanescent. It's like mist, early morning mist, and the sun shines and the mist is gone. And if, you don't, if the sun doesn't shine, the mist is pretty obvious. 
Well, the mind is like that. If we don't look very carefully, if the light of awareness doesn't shine on the mind, it seems like there's something there, pretty substantial. It moves us around. And then <laughs> the light of awareness shines on this apparent substance in the air, in the mind, and before our very eyes, it disappears. It's not there. It's, it just uh, evaporates like vapor. What in that experience is enduring, is under your control, is who you would want to claim you at rock bottom essence are? There isn't anything that we have experienced in the mind that has that much substance or that much tangibility or that much enduring uh, presence. So these and other experiences point to the lack of an enduring autonomous entity. And sometimes I think we get caught in this word self. And so I like to not use it non-self, self and non-self, and rather, what do you mean by self? And often what we mean is some enduring entity, autonomous, um, free will acting thing that chooses to do. And when we understand intentions as being the acting on choice, and we really see how ephemeral intentions are, and how insubstantial they are, and how not under our control they are, then that whole idea about choice, I choose, goes out the window. It's, we don't choose anything. Conditions come together, things happen. We know it. There is knowing of it. So all of these um, experiences help us to uh, let go of this tenacious craving and grasping of this wrong view. And it is, I, I sympathize with how imp apparently impossibly difficult it is to experience what we think no self should feel like. Forget it. You know, anything that you say, aha, this is no self, is going to be a real solidification around self. You can be sure. So, it's, it's but this, this belief, as the Buddha acknowledged, and as we can really see, as your question indicates, this belief has, is, has been conditioned for lifetimes upon lifetimes, upon lifetimes, as human and as other being, that just is not going to be let go of by saying, oh, no self? Great. <laughs> no, it's really a tenaciously held belief. It's so tenaciously held, we don't even know we're holding it. It is so deep down in our conditioning that we don't even know that we've got that belief. Somebody says, you believe in a self or no self? I don't know. 
convince me. I'll believe you. And it's much, much deeper than that. And we just begin to see it in, you know, the subtlety of practice. You know, watching the mind, the body, intentions, feelings, all of our things that we identify with as being me. And seeing that they're all impermanent, insubstantial, due to conditions, not our control. It's very freeing, actually. I mean, it can be frightening conceptually to think, no self, what? <laughs> no way. <laughs> but experientially, it is tasty. So, if it doesn't, if it doesn't resonate, forget it. Don't bother. Don't even think about it. Just practice. You'll see. So, let's have a day of further practice, enjoying conditions as they arise and pass away. <laughs> <laughs>
mindfulness takes as its object the sound. Sometimes mindfulness takes as its object hearing. And sometimes mindfulness takes as its object the sensitivity of the sense base being stimulated. Very, very subtle material or physical experience. But sometimes in the sensitivity of practice, when mindfulness is very clear, or our understanding is very clear, then sometimes we'll notice that that is what mindfulness takes as its object. So it's not the one who hears, but it is the, the ear base or the eye or the nose. And we may feel that as the contact itself. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I just remember one time sitting in Burma, and I'm sure it's happened here too. Uh, very quietly and still, the hall was really still and quiet, and was in the midst of uh, some very good mindfulness where there was fair continuity and the experience was very subtle. And someone came in the door at the back of the meditation hall, which had a screen on it, it was a screen door, and they didn't gently let the door close, it, they let the spring go crash, and it was as if the ear base itself was <laughs> rattled. It wasn't so much the hearing, hearing, or the sound itself. It's, it was the impact of the sound on the sensitivity of the ear, which was painful. Sometimes if you've ever fasted, or I'm not suggesting you do it here, but if you're on eight precepts, when breakfast rolls around, when something you really like, when you take that first taste, it just touches that little place on the tongue where cinnamon and sugar really... Mm -mm. <laughs> huh? And it's not, the, it's not the tasting, it's not the cinnamon flavor or whatever it is, cinnamon sugar flavor, whatever it is. it's that contact with the with that sensitive part of the tongue that just kind of mm, mm, sparkles throughout the body huh? due to that contact. Without even knowing that it's cinnamon, without even knowing that it's tasting, whoa, there's some very clear knowing of that contact, of that sense base being stimulated. So, and it's not so much that we choose which one to pay attention to. Oh, I'm, now I'm going to notice, you know, the, the base or the object or the consciousness. In the, notice, in the noticing of hearing or tasting, it's implied or implicit in that is uh, awareness of or noticing object, base, consciousness. Does that speak to your question? Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I get, uh, it's almost like seasick 
of your just kind of a feeling of imbalance. Sometimes put a body more to it, usually not. As if the meditation hall is walking. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to walk. And I do that other time. And uh, I'm generally pretty sensitive to being airship, train sick, etc. Is this just that happening? Or is there something else of just feeling more vertical? Uh, the comment is about feeling seasick, a little bit nauseous, vertigo, or something, when he's sitting perfectly still, right? Or walking, or whatever. And sometimes feels like the meditation hall is on a boat. And it's kind of... Mm -hmm. What's the question? Why is that happening? Or Is there something that I can... Um, it's not exactly pleasant, so I'm wondering if I'm... Walking, if I walk fast, it'll go away. Uh -huh. So it's not as if I need to slow down. Right. I just don't know whether this is right. something that's transient. Um, right. Stronger and stronger waves of this. Or what? Okay, the, 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 the question is, um, what to do? <laughs> <laughs> you know the answer. I'll, but I'll, I'll magnify it into a... <laughs> I'll magnify it into something besides just noting it. Uh, <laughs> um, it's pretty universal, actually, that at times we feel very fluid. Sometimes it's a real fluid feeling, and it really does feel like we, or the floor, or the cushion, or the walking floor itself, are really afloat. As far as practice is concerned, of course, we just have to notice or note um, dizziness or nausea or tipping or swaying or movement, whatever that sense of that we feel. And if there is the reaction of fear, to notice fear, if it's curiosity, to note curiosity. If we try to explain it as oh, there must be an earthquake or something, we notice, and we note, explaining, and etc. Sometimes, the insight into impermanence is so comprehensive and so rapid that the illusion of solidity and stability is undermined and it is noticed. And there then is really no sense of a solid body or a stable room or cushion or anything else. And it's not like we're noticing, oh, this is very impermanent. The feeling or the experience is just as you acknowledged it. Tipping and dizziness and uh, a feeling like the floor is f sloping away from you or whatever. And you might feel like you're a drunken sailor, just kind of, it's like, whoa. But it can be at times. Um, a depth of insight into the fluxing nature of everything. 
It could also be something you ate. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, if you really want to believe you're a good yogi, it's insight. If you really want to believe, oh, the, uh, it's something I ate. So, <laughs> the experience is the same. You know, you just note it. You just, <laughs> you just note it and... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes, Judith. question is about equanimity or denial. Or delusion. I mean, delusion. Hmm. Give me an example, because uh, that, that, that's a whole talk. So give me an example that I can... <laughs> <laughs> Just... Uh, process of coming to know, um, for example, unpleasant experience, something that irritates us. Maybe initially we notice the irritation, and with some continuity of our mindfulness, uh, we can begin to set the irritation aside, or let it be, and just be with the actual experience itself. But the irritation is just kind of sneak, trying to sneak in. But we're just, we're just trying to stay with, oh, this, is, this is really unpleasant, I don't like this, this is really... <laughs> but we're not, we're not just dwelling in the um, irritation or kind of wallowing in the irritation. Then we begin to see some equanimity there begins to be some balance. If you're, if you're really feeling cut off from the experience, then you're probably not balanced so much as in denial or suppressing the experience. If you're staying in touch with the unpleasantness, and you know it's unpleasant, and yet your mind is not wallowing in the disliking, I don't want it, I, gotta expl- I want to explain it, or anything like that, then there's some equanimity. Equanimity is quite hard to, or the balance of mind is quite hard to see. 
as a single experience. Um, it comes in a package with many other qualities of mind, among them mindfulness, tranquility, concentration, etc. So that for much of practice, what we really notice is the stillness. We might notice the tranquility and the steadiness of the mind without really recognizing, oh, along with that is a lot of non-reactivity, which is the balance, which is the equanimity. But physically we feel very still. Mentally we can, we can see the, the steadiness of the mindfulness or the steadiness of the knowing mind. And that is really a very pleasurable experience, really having that stillness, that steadiness. within which we see pleasant, unpleasant, mental, physical, the whole, the whole display of phenomena, and not move. The mind doesn't move, the steadiness doesn't get disrupted, the stillness of the body doesn't get shaken, and it's just stuff going by. Then we can really see that there is a lot of balance in the mind, non-reactivity in the mind. Yeah. It's... Um, time for the interviews and the rest of the day, but I think there's a couple of notices. One, uh, while remaining settled in the awareness of sitting, let your attention notice whatever sounds appear around you. Letting your attention be open and receptive, relaxed. Renew your attention in each moment to notice whatever sounds appear near or far, internally or externally. Without doing anything special, just attending to them when they appear. Also let your attention notice the movement of the breath as it appears at the nostrils or the abdomen, wherever you feel it most distinctly.
connecting your attention to the beginning of the in-breath and sustaining your attention for as long as that movement of the in-breath lasts and connecting your attention to the beginning of the out-breath and sustaining your attention on it for as long as it lasts. Noticing the quality of movement or tingling, pressure, the sensations of breathing. It may be helpful to make a light mental note of in as you breathe in, noticing that movement or sensations, and making a light mental note of out as you breathe out, feeling that movement and sensation. We don't need to control the breath in any way, but let the breath breathe itself naturally. If your attention is called to other predominant sensation in the body, let your attention be fully with it, leaving the breath attending to the most predominant sensations in the body for as long as they remain strong, distinctive, connecting your attention to them and sustaining your attention on them, noticing their quality of hardness or aching, stretching, pressure, and what happens to it. Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it change location? Does it fade away gradually? Does it stop abruptly? By sustaining your attention on the predominant experience, you will know what happens to it and what appears next. When you notice that you have been thinking or the mind has been wandering, lost, recognize thinking as planning, remembering, commenting, judging, narrating, See these two as momentary appearances in the mind to be known and noted. Let them come, let them go without a sense of struggle, remaining at rest in the awareness of thinking. Notice particularly the manifestations of the hindrances, 
sometimes very gross, great sleepiness, great restlessness, wandering mind, desire, aversion, doubt, sometimes very, very subtle, slight anticipation, subtle irritation, minimal questioning, wondering. These two are subtle manifestations of the hindrances. Also, impermanent, impersonal appearances in the mind. Recognize them when present. Notice what happens to them while remaining present in the awareness of them. If you get confused, lost, forgetful, return to the primary object of the breath, re-establishing direct and immediate contact, connection in that moment and sustaining that connection or contact into the next and the next, recognizing the quality of movement or sensation moment after moment. Remain at ease with the way things are and recognize them for what they are, temporary appearances in the mind. today about practice. The question is about the use and function of walking practice. I think a right understanding of walking practice is supported by the understanding that what we're doing here is undertaking a training of the mind and an in-depth look at an understanding of the mind. So that if we understand the walking practice is really a mental training, just as the sitting is really a mental training, then we can see that there's really not a preference of one over the other. And I know it's hard to believe, and 
that one can get as mindful, concentrated, and as deep a wisdom in walking as in sitting, as in standing, as in going to the toilet, as in eating. So with that understanding that walking is as effective and uh, efficient a way to train the mind as in sitting, in one sense we can say there really shouldn't be a preference. So then we look at the other um, benefits of walking or sitting, or we look at the, the strengths and limitations of each of these practices. We all know that in sitting we tend to get stiller, maybe a little quieter, maybe a little more um, tranquil, maybe a little clearer, maybe a little subtler experiences. And in walking it tends to be energetic both physically and mentally because we have to uh, kind of guard our senses that we're not just looking around. So we have to use the energy of restraint or renunciation, as Carol was talking about last night, to limit our sensory contact and to really stay with the practice of walking. Because walking arouses more energy, both physically and mentally, we can see when to use more walking and when to use less walking. If we're feeling sluggish, tired, heavy, not energized, that's the time to do more walking. If you're feeling very still, very steady, and very present, I don't mean just numb and dull in that steadiness or stillness, but really alert, then continue sitting because the energy is there for that degree of stillness and concentration. And in the, in the development of all of the five faculties, it's energy and concentration that need to be balanced. So if you are feeling over-concentrated or over-still, you need to raise the energy. If you're feeling over-energized, you need to raise your stillness or raise your concentration. So then that way we can walk more if we need more energy or if we're uh, kind of dropping into sinking mind or are just too slow and still unenergized or if you feel over-energized to sit, just absolutely sit still or stand still and let that concentration and stillness come up to balance that amount of energy that you have in the mind and the body. In the walking practice also, we have instructed in three, three uh, phases or three speed walking. You know, left, right, left, right, lifting, placing, lifting, placing, and lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. Those are just generic, so to speak. You can walk 
very rapidly, just noting step, step, step. Or you can walk even micro, micro slow, noting six or more segments in each step. So it's not that there's any right way or wrong way, but I would say walk at the pace you can be most mindful at, at that time. And that pace may change within a walking period or certainly from walking to walking or day to day. Does that answer your, speak to your question a little bit? In this, in this, in the instruction that we offer in walking, we don't pay particular attention to breathing, except we breathe. You know, we, we don't stop breathing, we just don't pay attention to it. So that we use the sensations of movement in the leg, from the waist or hips down, as the primary object. Now, there may as in sitting, your mind gets drawn off into other predominant experiences, and we notice that, come back to the breath. In the walking, even though the sensations and movement of the leg are the predominant or the primary place for anchoring our attention, our attention may be called at different times in the walking practice to things we see, things we hear, thoughts, may also be drawn to the breath. At which time, of course, you notice it. You note it as whatever it is. It's fast, it's slow, it's tight, it's loose, it's whatever it is. But not using that as the primary object and not using it as a way of synchronizing breathing and walking with, you know, some kind of elaborate, uh, you know, rhythm. That's a mental game that is not necessarily being mindful. It's playing a game. Can I walk at a certain pace with my breathing? Control. And we're not so interested in controlling as in being natural and noticing what is appearing. I know when I practice, I always think, if I'm restless, I should walk faster. But in fact, it really keeps the restlessness stirred up. But you can try it, um, try for yourself, see for yourself, if when you're really restless, if walking fast tames it, so to speak, or, or allows you to get a handle on it, or if just standing still, or sitting still, actually lets the mind come into that presence of, you know, just recognizing the presence of restlessness and being okay with it. The antidote to restlessness is sukha, happy comfort of mind and body. So it gives us a clue as to the experience of restlessness being very 
unhappy discomfort of mind and body. That's the nature of restlessness, the experience of restlessness. Very unpleasant experience. So in whatever way you can encourage happy comfort of mind and body, sitting comfortably, standing in an unpainful, relaxed way, and then letting the energy settle into that posture and then being attentive to it. But I would encourage you to really look for yourself when restless. What, for you, is the best way for um, not suppressing it, not controlling it, but not just acting it out either. Because in any of those, we don't really notice the way things are. We end up controlling, contracting. And what we really want to do is see the nature of restlessness. It is an impermanent, impersonal appearance in the mind, manifesting as sensations and thoughts and very restless and wandering mind. But it's, it's just a filter over the mind. So experiment. Maybe, maybe, yeah. If there is a real physical discomfort or mental agitation, put yourself in the conditions that allow or are most likely to let the mind and body feel comfortable. another day of practice. So <laughs> I guess that's what we're here for. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.